What's happening, weirdos? This is Conan O'Brien. I can't believe it. I'm so happy that we finally got to sit down. It's over Zoom, uh, obviously, uh, here in quarantine in Los Angeles. So uh, I'm sorry that the audio quality isn't exactly as good as it usually is on this show. Um, but I hope this is a, a bright spot in your day. I know a lot of people are dealing with um, cabin fever. I know people are working very hard. Our medical professionals are working very, very hard. Uh, and I know a lot of people are dealing with anxiety and stress and depression. I hope this helps a little bit. I sure got a boost out of it myself, talking with somebody that I owe so much to. Uh, Conan really, really, really started my career in a huge way. And I am so indebted to him. And I, I'm thrilled to call him my friend. And I'm so glad that we got to have this chat. Um, we are putting together a best of uh, episode. So if there are any moments in this episode uh, or any other episode after May 2018, this is going to be the third best of You Made It Weird. Go to our Facebook page uh, or tweet it at Katie Levine. It's KT Money on Twitter. Um, we're looking for specific bits, not just like lines, but like bits. Like a good example would be when Kenny DeForest was on and we did Yoker. Like that killed me. That made me laugh so hard. Not the Joker, but Yoker. Uh, that is something we're going to include. So if you want something included in the third best of You Made It Weird, go to the You Made It Weird Facebook page, leave a comment on that post, and please be as specific as you can. After May 2018, and uh, long bits, not just one line here or there, would be helpful to Katie. And time codes, if you're nasty. Or just a general idea of where it may be in the episode, because she's going to be cutting that together. Which, for me personally, is going to be, I can't wait to listen to it. I might America's Funniest Home Videos it and do commentary on every clip, because I really, I think we could all use the laughs right now. So be sure to vote. Uh, and and nominate the moments that you want in the best of you made it weird on the Facebook page. Uh, as you guys know, I don't norm I don't do normal ads on this show. I do Pete's picks, which are products that I actually use and actually love. The first Pete's pick right here on my desk is Alpha Brain. This episode is brought to us by our friends at Onnit, uh, who make Alpha Brain, which is a nootropic. Nootropic is basically a supplement for your brain. It's like fish food for your ideas. I never don't have alpha brain on my desk, in my car, in the pockets of my jackets. I have it in the powder form, which I sometimes pour straight into my mouth. I have it in the pill form. It is not a stimulant uh, like caffeine. It doesn't keep you up. It doesn't make you jittery. In fact, I like to take it before I go to bed because it gives me trippy ass dreams. But it is basically fish food for your ideas and for your creativity. For the past four or five years now, I haven't done stand-up, I haven't written a script, I haven't recorded an episode of this podcast, I haven't guested on someone else's podcast, or been on a talk show, or even just gone on a date and wanted to be interesting for Sweet Lady Val without taking two or three Alpha Brain 15 minutes before. It's hard to explain uh, because it's not like something that jolts you, it just gives your brain the earth-grown nutrients that it needs in order to function. It helps support memory. It helps support focus, recall, language, uh, your ability to access your, your vocabulary, which is obviously so important to me. Uh, I wish I had known about this in college. It would have made a huge difference. I wish I had known about it even earlier in my stand-up career uh, because there's so much memorization uh, and recall involved. But I'm so glad that I have it now. I swear by it. 
And I am so glad they're a sponsor of the podcast. Go to onnit.com slash weird and you will get 10% off. The best way to know about Alpha Brain is to try it. Onnit, O-N-N-I-T dot com slash weird to get 10% off and show your support of the show. We also, Conan and I talk about Charlotte's Web. That's cwhemp.com slash weird. Promo code KEEPITCRISPY19 will get you 10% off if you want to try some Charlotte's Web. And, of course, one of the originals now, it's, it's been with us long enough, I can call it one of the originals, is Kachava. You guys know I'm into plant-based vegan superfoods. Kachava is a plant-based bag, basically. It's a drink mix rich uh, full of nutrient-rich superfoods that have been revered by tribal cultures for centuries. It makes you feel fantastic. It makes you feel full for people that are curious about how to eat plant-based but don't know how to begin. I always point them to Kachava because it actually tastes great and it's actually full of what your body needs. It's 100% plant-based. It's got omega-3s from chia and flaxseed. It's got eight superfruits in the bag, 17 greens and veggies in the bag. It's even harder than usual for me to get the greens that I need in my life. I love knowing that there's 17 greens and veggies in Kachava. Gluten-free, soy-free, no artificial sweeteners, no preservatives, digestive support built right in, adaptogens built right in, 24 grams of plant-based protein. Boom. People say, where do vegans get their protein? You don't have to be vegan, but it, you know, 24 grams. <laughs> what, if, what if you were listening? Do you have to be vegan? Brian Regan voice. 24 grams of plant-based protein, 9 grams of fiber, and it's actually delicious. It gets me high from nutrition, a nutrition high from the uh, maca root, which is wonderful for vitality, and the raw cacao. I got it to add to my smoothie, but it turns out it is the smoothie. You can make it with just water or almond milk and strawberries. Tastes like a chocolate strawberry milkshake. 20% off uh, your order at kachava.com slash weird. 20% and show your support of this podcast. K-A-C-H-A-V-A dot com slash weird. Speaking of plant-based superfoods, I have a new Pete's pick for you. I just found out about this. I get, just got turned on to this. I just found out about the healing power, the health-boosting power, I guess I should say, of Tahitian noni juice. I know this sounds maybe a little weird. I didn't know about it either. But noni is a Tahitian superfruit that's known for its medicinal properties. It's been used by healers for thousands of years in ancient health remedies. But now it's scientifically proven. It's boosting immunity, it's a natural energy enhancement, and it supports overall wellness. I was skeptical, I really was at first, but uh, my friend David Vanderveen turned me on to it. He showed me that they have published and peer-reviewed studies of clinical double-blind trials with placebo that show that four ounces of this Tahitian noni juice twice a day increases uh, something called your NK cells, which are your natural killer cells. NK cells are what fight viruses and help your immune system stay powerful. It increases your NK cells by up to and over 30%. It's a powerful combination of superfruits, noni juice, and blueberry juice. It's got 275 nutrients and phytonutrients. You know I love this stuff. Vegan superfood phytonutrients, including key minerals, uh, vitamins, and antioxidants. It's got powerful adaptogens that uh, defend against stressors naturally enhances energy. I've been taking it for the past uh, maybe eight days. I look forward to it because it gives me that revitalizing boost. It helps me with that energy that I feel. 
And I love the feeling that I'm doing something to help my body be as healthy as it can be. Uh, it's non-GMO, it's vegan, it's gluten-free. Usually a one-liter bottle of TNJ and their supplement Cell Defense, which is clinically shown to help your body fight inflammation, is $100. But you can get both for 40 bucks and show your support of this podcast. Thank you, David Vanderveen, for telling me about TNJ. Uh, and if you guys want to try it with me, uh, go to noni, N-O-N-I, newage.com slash weird 40 like 40 bucks noninewage.com slash weird 40 happy to have a new pete's pick in the mix uh especially here for conan man conan o'brien i'm so stoked we just did this chat today so try a pete's pick put your feet up take your mask off if you're inside throw the ear pods on relax everything's gonna be fine and, and melt away to the laughs and the insight and the fun with my dear friend, Conzies, O'Breezies. I get into it. If it isn't, can we hear him? Testing, testing, one, two, three. There he is. Testing, testing, bumblebee. Testing, testing, all day long we sing the testing, testing song. Ah. <laughs> uh. Uh, I'm fresh out of the shower. I got slick back hair. <laughs> oh, man. Where are you? Conesies oh, O'Breezies. Conesies O'Breezies, a name no one's ever called me. <laughs> and and, home, <laughs> and ho- Holmesies O'Breezies. How are you? I'm good, man. How are you? Don't call me man. What are you, some hippie? <laughs> <laughs> We're off to the races. I uh, I am a hippie. I love hippie shit. I'm Ew. like a hippie kind of guy. I haven't bathed in a while. Is that anything? Where are you? You're in uh, the basement? I told Katie, who's on. Hi, Katie. Um, that Katie. she, that, that you were going to, I was saying my job is going to make it so that you're not just riffing about the fact that I have a sauna. <laughs> I... Ah! I like the sauna. That's a nice look. That's good. Well, that's, she said, I bet he has one. Do you have a sauna? I do not have a sauna. I find way, that weird. I, when I first saw it, I suspected that you owned Lincoln's birthplace. That's what it looks like. <laughs> it looks or, like a little log cabin. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's my Walden cabin. It's yeah. where I'm living. That's yeah. where I live now. It's where I hang out. That's nice. Uh, well, yeah, I I am happy to see you. You're, are you are you in lockdown? I'm assuming you're you're playing. No, by the I'm way. not taking it seriously. I <laughs> I want to be the celebrity who draws all the hate from. So I think I don't believe in science. I think it's all bullshit. I'm a states rights guy, and I'm out there licking everybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's my new go fuck yourself. As I say, go lick a doorknob. Yeah. Instead- if you want to say go fuck yourself in a clever way. I have a thing where I, that's called surprise visit old people where I, I, put, <laughs> I, put a, I put a I put a football helmet on and I jump through their window and go, it's me. Let's all hug. I've um, thought about that. When I go on walks, someone somewhere has to be going around, just a crazy person that just goes up to people and goes, Aah! you know what I mean? Like that yeah, has to be happening. Well, there's footage of... 
um, first of all, just to set the record straight, because I always have to be careful because I joke about these things. And then someone will say, he shouldn't be doing that. That's yeah. terrible. Um, yeah. uh, that's Gene Stapleton listening to the <laughs> podcast. Uh-huh. I, um, no, I don't do that. I think I've been very hyper-responsible about it. But I've noticed that when I, there have been times where I'll, I, I'll go out for a run or something and I'm wearing the mask and, and I'll, I'll be running and I'll see this very old couple. They look like they're late 80s walking very slowly and I'll sort of start to try and do a big arc around them so that I'm leaving tons of room. And sometimes I've noticed them like waving and moving towards me. And I'm like, no, no. <laughs> and I don't know if that's them deciding we've had a good life. He looks like he, <laughs> we've had a good life. He looks like he's carrying it. So let's let's yeah. go. Let's get as close to him as we can. I don't know. I, all. I've told I've said this before, but I had a somebody that I went to college with. I ran into her on a hike and she went in for a hug. No, really? She and I said, "What are you crazy?" Not in a rude way, but I just—I thought she was joking. I was like, "What are you crazy?" And she was—I think she was deeply offended. She thought I was just big timing her. I'm going to tell you something I haven't told anybody, but long before this coronavirus, if someone tried to hug me, I'd shout, "What are you crazy?" <laughs> you got that from, from uh, old a, Seinfeld. That's an Irish thing, you know. It's just—it's <laughs> it's, it's just. Uh, what are you doing? Why are you trying to get close to me? Do you, I feel like you're not concealable with a face mask. That's not a burn. I'm saying like, no, I no, was no. going to ask, can no. you go to Whole Foods now and blend in more? No. But it's not, your I, logo isn't your face. It's your, it's your hair. Were I to rob a bank, <laughs> and, and this has nothing to do with the coronavirus, but let's say three years ago, I had put a mask on and gone in and robbed a bank, they'd immediately say, Conan O'Brien was in here with a mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he robbed. No, that's absolutely He true. was in here wearing the rubber Nixon mask from Point Break, uh, but we could <laughs> tell because he had a Belgian pastry on his head. <laughs> and uh, so, I don't know. Um, it is It is a very, I, I'm so fascinated that life can be this long and this weird and this interesting that I now walk around and if someone's not wearing a disguise, I avoid them. Yeah. I think that's insane. Like I literally take comfort. If you're dressed like Jesse James or a foot soldier from Cobra, right. I, I feel safer with you around me. But if you're just like free sky in it, you know, the, this is, uh, this is something that occurred to me and other people have made this point. But I was reading a novel, a pretty famous novel called Wolf Hall, and it's about uh, Thomas Cromwell and Henry VIII, and it's this, it's this very esteemed novel. And I was reading it, and this is, I was reading this, I started it like a month ago, but in the novel, just as the coronavirus was breaking out, they were like, well, the sweating sickness is here again. We need, to, we need to send the children out of London or they'll die. Oops, we wow. forgot to. And they all died. And this was a regular thing that happened in the world constantly yeah. throughout history. And then we, we went through like most of the 20th century without really dealing with it and then got into the 21st century and we're freaking out. 
But can you imagine this used to happen all the time? This was like the yeah. history of civilization was, yeah. yeah, and then this thing came along and lots of people died. We didn't know what it was. We all had to stay in our houses. We all had to try and some people ran to the country. Some people stayed in their houses. People freaked out. People got suspicious. Yeah. No one knew really what was going on. People misbehaved. Some people behaved well. And then uh, that's the history of mankind. So we're yeah. sort of revisiting what was normal. Well, there's some comfort in that, some eerie comfort, right? It's like this is a uniquely human experience. We haven't had it, us in our yeah. lifetimes, but it is something that the human species has dealt with and overcome time and time again. Sometimes it, at it, you know, unthinkable loss, but did yeah. you see the F. Scott Fitzgerald letter? I don't know if it was real. I'm going to be so embarrassed if it wasn't real, but apparently they found an F. Scott Fitzgerald letter that he writes about being in lockdown in Paris. And I was just like, yeah, I mean, of course yeah, we would find probably, like yeah, that. like during the 1918, 19 pandemic, you know, or during something else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who knows? Well, you know, this is, it's a weird, uh, um, point of, I don't think it's a weird point of view, but I, I always find it comforting and people listening might disagree, but I always find it, my philosophy is usually, oh, don't worry. Things have always been bad. Meaning that's how I am about politics. That's how I am about, you know, people will say, oh my God, the country is so divided. And I go, we've always been divided. And they go, no, well now it's the worst it's ever been. And I'll say, no, we had the civil war. And they think I'm being a pessimist, but I'm actually saying. Look at the pattern. Yeah. There's, there's, if you read history, um, humans are, we've always been very flawed and things have usually gone wrong (laughs) and we stumble our way through it. And uh, then we come out the other side. And uh, so I don't know, maybe that's not comforting at all. I don't know. No, I I was actually there before you even said that because I was the one saying there's an eerie comfort in knowing that this is sort of part of life. And that is sort of stored in our DNA. Like there's a, a collective memory of how to, and that we can do this because we've done it over and over again. Have you read The Fourth Turning? A lot of people are talking about that. No, right what's now. that? I'm not I'm gonna botch it, but I feel like as a history buff you would enjoy it. It's a little academic, so I don't know. You might have to have someone explain it to you. Why am I burning you? <laughs> it's I like because that. you're <laughs> no, I, I know you're so clearly smart is why no, it's no, fun I to burn you. I, please, please. No, that's the other thing is that I'm just gonna lie down for a second. That's the yeah. other thing. Uh, is this that is Michael Jackson off the wall right now? Exactly. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm back with. Um, I uh, uh, no. I I'm I hate people fa- assuming that I'll read a book and love it if it's dense. And I'm like, no. Yeah. I <laughs> I get just as frustrated by ideas yeah. as anybody. Well, so, what's the so- book? The fourth turn. The fourth turning. It's called The Fourth Turning, and it's basically, I'm going to botch this, but the premise is that everything has four cycles. The human life has four cycles, the four seasons. This sounds very woo-woo, by the way, but it's actually history, academia that wrote it, these two guys, and they look at the, uh, at the way that things unfold, World War II, 9-11, World War I, and they track how it's almost as if the universe itself has four cycles that it goes through and it was written a long time ago and i believe or i believe it was written a while ago oh so it was written before all these things happen 
and people are saying it matches up now. That's what I'm saying. It's almost like history psychicness. It's they're not being psychic. They're not claiming to be psychic. They're saying, look at the pattern. It's always been this way. It always will be this way. And in 2020, we're probably going to have something like this. That's that was their theory. Huh? Yeah. Nah. <laughs> you know what I love is, is by just saying nah, <laughs> I don't have to read the book. Yeah. Right? Like, I can just say nah, and then I don't have to read the book. There's no responsibility to read the book now. I had a friend in college, a professor, Mark Stevick, and his roommate worked for the Boston Herald. And the Boston Herald made a big mistake. And everyone was looking to them to have egg on their face and make this big apology. And what they said instead was, we goofed, which was like the perfect way to disarm it and apologize and move on. It, it reminds me of your, nah, nah. goofed. No, this I should do that. Way. I'd like to just do that like a book review. So <laughs> someone comes out with their theory of this, you know, really dense subject like American involvement in the Pacific Rim, 1885 to 1975. And it's an 800-page book. And it's been written by this guy that devoted his life to it. And I just write, nah. That's my review. I could just say, Conan, have you read Sapiens? And you could just say, nah. I know you don't have a ton of time, so I'm going to ask you a couple things. Do you sure. mind? Yeah. How's your is your back bothering you? I yeah, watch you I'm whisper. just having a little bit of a. It's like you know what I did. I went on a super long bike ride. Oh no! And I did it. Uh, I have a little trainer. You know, like you can uh, hook your bike up to a trainer, and so that you don't leave the house. And wow. I was really grinding for an hour, and then I just got this leg cramp as I was oh, no. sitting here talking to you. So I'm standing now. And when I'm standing, it's perfectly fine. I love that. I'm glad. Get some and also, I like this idea that I feel like a Greek orator because I'm standing and telling you my thoughts and walking and holding an iPad at the same time. <laughs> I know. I want to try and find things that I know about you that other people might not know about you. And this isn't that juicy at all. But you do have an inversion table in your dressing room at the show. I don't anymore. You don't? But I, yeah, I don't anymore. I haven't had it for a while. But I got spooked. I got scared off of it because someone said, that's not that good for you to have all that blood going to the capillaries of your head. And so... Um, that's all I, it took? Yeah, it really, I mean, someone just said, eh. And also I noticed it was taking up a lot of room. It was, yeah. and so it was the combination of this could cause a cerebral hemorrhage and it's taking up room in an otherwise, in, in not a generous space, which is my little, my dressing room. It is where we small. have, where we have meetings and stuff. So I just thought, you know what? Uh, let's put it someplace else. And I think someone on the, sh- someone else on the show took it with my permission. But yes, for many years, I had an inversion table which worked now you're a tall guy yeah you're at least my height if not taller right 
I'm six six. I'm as tall as your hair. So I yeah. bought one. I bought one. It, it. I like it. And I believe it's Michael Crichton that says he uses it to write. The reason I brought it up was one. It's fun that I know that too, or at least to me it is. Two. The main thing I want to talk to you about, and this seems like talking about another life, but let's just do it. Is how do you get? How do you refill your soul? This is something that I, as a performer. Whether it is something physical like biking or, yep. or hanging upside down, no one in this business, you're the longest tenured talk show host currently right. working. Right. You, you know the answer to this question. I'm fascinated, not just as a talk show host, as a person, what do you do? Do you fill your brain with history books? Do you take time off? Are you quiet? Are you still? Do you exercise? There's no answer that won't fascinate me. Okay. Um, uh, I find that there's there's no one answer to to this, um, you know, because I've been doing this a long time. A question I get a lot is, "So you're, st- you know, when are you thinking of wrapping it up?" Which I always feel is kind of insulting, <laughs> you know, like like uh, you know, so like asking Michael Jordan, yeah, yeah when you, you know, hang it up, you know, we so you're about done, right? Is always the tone. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and also it's one of those things where you think um i just always wanted to be thought of as doing funny stuff and the idea of being around the longest was not something that i was aiming for and it's also not something i don't know i just felt like saying yep i've been around a really long time doesn't feel like something I would want to brag about, you know, right, I right. stayed at this party much longer than anybody. Um, but, but how do you stay? Like you want to think about it as funny stuff. Yes. That means say, you want to look at it as a child. How do you maintain that wonder for your really cool job and how fun comedy is? I, um, I think the simple secret for me is I like to make stuff. I like to try and make people laugh and it does give me joy. And I often, the funniest part of my day will happen in the writer's room, or it would be happen if you and I bumped into each other and we were just goofing around in a hallway. That might yeah. be the funniest part of the day, not maybe something that happens on the show. And I've always, I, I get juice from that. I get juice from, um, I get juice from from sort of mind melding with people and connecting and being really silly and trying to add to their silliness if they throw out something silly and then get this little spark going and then you create this this tiny little brush fire. That yeah. to me is what keeps me going. And so I have found that over the years that can happen. That could happen for me in a Simpsons writing room. It, it could happen to me on the show. It could happen to me in my own late night writer's room. It can happen if I'm on a, doing a travel show and we're getting really giddy because we've been, we're, we've flown to some other location, you know, and I'm in another, I'm on another continent and I'm just getting super giddy because I'm tired and the writers and I are, are just laughing our asses off. Yeah. Uh, and 
I is that know. one of them? For for me, disrupting my sleep schedule can be really helpful. Yeah, like flying flying to another city. You flew to Haiti. Yeah, I mean, the, your body couldn't have adjusted the entire trip. Like you probably yeah. started to adjust on the flight home. We did that. We did. We've done shows. I mean, the real the, the shows that really disrupt are uh, we did Korea, and we did mm. a show in Japan, and. Um, We've done, uh, and, and there you're just, you're kind of high the whole time. You're so sleep deprived and you're so off your schedule. Plus you're, I can't describe to you. I mean, some people listening have probably been there, but when you're in South Korea and then you go up to the border with North Korea and you're in, you have to drive through a minefield and they have a road in the middle but they tell you on the bus, yep, those are, there's 10,000 mines on either side of this road as we get wow. you to the DMZ, and you're sleep-deprived, and you're a comedian. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not military personnel. You just, yeah. And then you get there, and you see a North Korean guard staring at you across the line, and they're, uh, um, I, you know, you're just... You, you're kind of hallucinating, and the absurdity yeah. of it all, there's a sadness to it, but there's also an, absurd, an absurdity to the whole thing. And I think that absurdity is, is you know, feeds the creativity. So yeah, there are all these okay. ways. I, I find, like, I just keep looking for, you know, the podcast is something that we started a while ago, and I didn't have any expectations at all. I just thought, well maybe this will be interesting. And I've really enjoyed that. Like this conversation you and I are having right now is not a conversation that can exist in a six minute. Yeah. uh, Let's go to commercial. That was great, Pete. And you've done my show many times and you come and you have really good prepared stuff and you kill and you got a lot of laughs and then we're both cracking up. And then I throw a commercial. (laughs) It's very different than this. Yeah. Yeah. It's like seated standup. It's, it's not, I'm so glad that you found the joy of, of podcasting. I, but what I'm hearing you saying is you sort of alchemize uh, a type of suffering, meaning things aren't going your way, meaning you're tired, you're driving in, you know, sandwiched by minefields, and then you're going to a border where there's an armed guard and nobody gives a shit about your show or you, right. and it's very scary. Right. But it sounds like you've trained yourself to turn that resistance into an absurd fuel I, you have to do. I find that I'm sometimes at my best when I'm, and you may have the same thing. If I'm scared before a gig or scared before I do something. And also I feel a little bit of resistance and I think this isn't going to work. This isn't any good. Um, I, I actually can find stuff that I wouldn't find otherwise. You know? Yeah, that panic, the panic fuels you, absolutely. You know, I, it is... Um, For the doubt. And I, I, asked, I asked, you know, Tony Randall, who's been gone a long time now, but he was just, you know, one of like the, the classic talk show host of the 70s and 80s and 90s and into the 2000s. Uh, and he was this very erudite guy. And I asked him once, I said, yeah, there's something wrong with me. I get just so worried and scared sometimes before a show and he said my dear boy you have to feel bad in order to feel good and <laughs> like it was just like oh you know he just, and he talked about it like yeah everybody knows that all That's performers funny. know that and I, I was like oh, i didn't know that 
You have to, what do you think he means by that? Not just as a life maxim, but as a performer? I find sometimes I just need to get kind of wound up. Uh, it's almost, if you can imagine, you know that thing Wiley, Wiley Coyote does in the old Roadrunner cartoons where he wants to, he wants to catch the Roadrunner, the Roadrunner speeds by. So what he does is he, he ties a, a, a giant rubber band between two trees and he pushes mm. his back against it and he pushes way, way back and then he lets go and um, it pushes him forward. He slingshots himself. That's how, what I think, because I think sometimes before I go do something, I need to kind of work myself into a little bit of a anxious funk. And before. move away. From that, that's, like a, that's a Zen idea. They talk about with archery, to get to the target, you have to move away from it. Yeah. So I think, I know you know that sometimes goofing off or, or fucking around or wasting time or being stupid or bugging Sona or, or ruining the meeting is what the, the host or whatever the performer may need. Yeah. You told me that we did our show together. You said, the set is a playground. They build it and you go out and play. And you had this real attitude of like, whatever you need to do to get into a silly space, which includes maybe not taking that meeting too seriously because you're trying to get into a state of irreverence and like a little yeah. bit off your axis. Yeah, exactly. I think, uh, I think the other thing is um, it's whatever gets you into that state. I, I think it isn't discussed a lot, but I think uh, being a, I don't know what I, I mean, uh, I don't, I don't know what ever know what to call myself because I'm not a stand up. I've done some of that, but I'm really not. I'm not a stand-up. I never think I'm a comedian. I don't really think I'm a talk show host because I know that's what I do. But I, So I've never really had a name for it. But I think if you're a humorist or someone whose job is to make people laugh, that's a crazy job. It's really strange. Nobody knows how it works. Nobody understands it. I've been pretty much thinking about comedy around the clock since 1981. And I still don't have any idea how it works really. And if people start to try and analyze it, I get very uncomfortable and I'm like, let's not do this. Let's not analyze it. Let's just let it go. So I find it, it's an absurd way to make a living. You know, it is. I'm very, (coughs) I'm very proud. Oh God. What happened? (laughs) Describe it off. It's dry. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> it's, it's deep. Oh, really? No, it, it was an epiglottal malfunction. Some spit went down the wrong way, and I am humiliated, and we will not edit it out. And we, we will, leave- will persevere. <laughs> we will leave it in this episode. It will be what people are tweeting about and talking about and retweeting it. Um, <laughs> what were you just saying? Oh, the absurdity, the, the, the magic, the looking for it. I think you might enjoy I believe it was E.E. E. Cummings. He said, um, if you want the song, don't dissect the bird. And I, yeah. I just, I, I think about that all the time. Don't yeah. dissect the bird. There's something about getting into that zone that I feel like desperation really fuels. Like, again, I, I did 80 episodes of a talk show. It's not the same, but I have a little taste. And when we were young and scrappy, and, and we were always young and scrappy, but that was good for us. Yeah. And, and I think of like single cone and you met Liza on a remote. Yep. I don't think, I don't think that's a mistake. I'm wondering if you see a parallel between all types of human desperation and finding laughs. I mean, obviously you were going week by week when you first had yep. your late show and, and you met your wife. 
the reason I'm mentioning that is because I think it's a similar frequency to be the young guy on the remote. That's like, Hey, I'll talk to anybody. I'll do anything. I'll lay down yeah. on this couch. I'll flip this or they're going to cancel us. I'm going to do this monologue. I'm going to talk to the band. I'm going to do that weird sketch. I need to get it. I mean, like it seems that can, so now that you're in a more comfortable place, um, I feel like I see a man and I relate to this who's trying to recreate some uncertainty by going to yeah. Japan, going to Korea, trying to get yourself off. Yeah. So you're not just repeating yourself. Is that, yes. is that, yeah. Yeah. Because I can, uh, there comes a point where, you know, between 1993 and now I can't even tell you how many hours of television I've done, but I can, <laughs> I, I sometimes, um, there's thousands of hours and we tried so many different strange things over the years that now that they've all been archived and you can see all of it in high def, uh, and my digital team's posting it, I'll wake up some days and turn on my phone and there'll be a video of me dressed in a, as a bike messenger wearing hmm. a gold helmet with wings on it. And <laughs> I'm in New York and it's nine, I'm, I'm six, four and 170 pounds because it's, it's 1994. Hmm. And, my, and I have no memory. I have yeah. no memory of this. And I'm yeah. talking to people on the street, no memory, no memory yeah. of any of it. And people will be like, well, wait a minute, how could that be possible? You spent a day as a bike messenger and you have no memory. I mean, I feel like I'm looking at somebody else. I have no idea what happened. <laughs> I have no idea how it ends. I'm looking at this very young, attractive woman, me, and I'm thinking, <laughs> I have no idea what's going to happen. And so... I just like to, uh, I don't know about you, but I find that I'm constantly looking for something that's going to make me feel like it's Christmas Day again, you know, and I'm a kid. And you need to work harder at it as you get older and calcify a little bit and crusty. You've got to actually work harder at um finding different voices, different things that excite you, different things you didn't expect about yourself, uh, getting into situations where you're scared. You've got you to try more and more stuff. And I enjoy yeah. it. It doesn't feel um, – I, like I like to be a little scared, like, oh, boy, what is this? Oh, my God. You know, we, we went to uh, Greenland when Trump announced that he was going to maybe buy Greenland uh, 3,500 absurd news cycles ago, we flew to Greenland and I was like uh, literally sometimes standing in a giant field of just volcanic rock <laughs> looking around thinking, how do I make this funny? Yeah. But um, you, I think that's the idea is we just have to keep trying. You only, yeah. you only, you only get to be here one time, uh, I believe. And so, you have to just, I want to wring all the juice out of this thing, you know? Is that is that a mantra? Like, do you have something that you repeat to yourself? You're in a, a field with volcanic rock. Because one of the first things you had me do for you, it was a remote for you, um, was we went to like Mets Stadium mm -hmm. or something. And I made the mistake of insisting my will on the remote. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. Right. Instead of letting the remote be what it is, which was 
I don't know what's funny about, like how funny would it have been, Conan, if I was just honest and was like, you sent me here. I don't know what's funny yeah. about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just yeah. went around and was like, well, who should I talk to? I don't even like baseball. Why am I here? That's so much funnier than I, I think I ended up doing some like everything's cooler in slow motion thing, which we've seen a million times. So I don't think we even use the remote, but it was funny because you were sort of like inducting me into the fear of like, you need to know that at any moment you need to drop it, you need to pivot. But what do you repeat to yourself? What do you remind yourself when you can't find it? or when you're Well, you know what? The, uh, there's that old saying, I am not an athlete. So I love it when, I, I always love it when people in comedy use sports yeah. analogies. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but, of course. But, and basically they're standing up there and they're telling a joke, but they'll liken it to, you know, I really, <clears throat> I really got in the box and they, they threw a, you know, they, they threw a, a uh, the, they threw one high and inside, and I I drove it hard over the left field wall. That was you, know, like, <laughs> you, you told a funny joke. Shut up, you know you. Yeah. And if someone yeah. really did throw a baseball your way, you would run and hide in a trash can. So, um, <laughs> but you know, I drove to the middle and I went up and around and I dunked. And you're like, no, you didn't. You you said something kind of ironic, and it was a good crowd at Largo. And shut up. That's uh, hilarious. So, um, but. There is an analogy, uh, I think it was a quarterback or someone in football said the holes are never where you think they are, you know, they're never, mm-hmm. they're never where they're supposed to be, meaning you spend all this time studying plays, studying plays, studying plays about X's and O's and how, how the defense is going to shift and how you need to, how you need to adjust. And, and if everybody on your team does the following 35 things, there should be theoretically an opening off to your right and you can grab the ball and you can run that way and they'll block for you and you'll get through in real life. And in football, it's hardly ever goes as smoothly as you thought it would. You know what I mean? And then a whole, and if, and the really good quarterbacks and the really good running backs know that, okay, that's the plan. But if for some reason everything goes to shit and the hole opens up on the left side for no reason that I'm going that way. Yeah. And so I learned I had a really good improv teacher um, who used to, before I could even take a legitimate like groundlings class. Uh, and this is the class where I met Lisa Kudrow uh, back in 1986. We both went to the, we signed up at this class at the Coronet theater and there was this really good improv teacher, this woman named Cynthia Segetti, and she's passed on now, but she had this amazing class where literally you'd come in and you'd put $10 in a jar and you'd take this class. And she said, um, I would get up there and I was so cerebral and quick and my mouth was always going really fast and my brain was always going really fast. And people in the class were always were saying to me, man, you're, you're really quick. And I was feeling my oats like, yeah, yeah, I'm the fastest gun. You know, I'm, I'm fast. <laughs> I'm really, you know, I'm really quick. Yeah. And she looked at me and she said, your problem is you think too much up there. And I was devastated because I just thought, what? But wait a minute. My brain is the thing that's always gotten me through and my quick wit. And she was like, yeah, it's killing you up there. Mm. And I was like, what? What do you mean? And her, her point was right, which is, you get up there with a plan and you push through with your plan and yeah, you say all this stuff and people laugh and everything, but you're not listening. You're yeah. not feeling, Receptive. 
what's really happening. You're not picking up. Um, and I, since I took that to heart and I realized it's this yin yang. Yes. You want to have a plan and you want to have ideas and you want to do the work. But then when you get in the moment with somebody, yeah, you need to be willing to throw it all away. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite talk show appearances I ever did was, I think it was the first real appearance I did after the whole Tonight Show craziness back in 2010. And I hadn't really gone on a major show and I was invited to go on David Letterman's show and I went and it was really strange because he and I hadn't really talked this whole time. And so I walked out, he introduces me, I walk out, crowd was very nice, a lot of applause. I look at him, he looks at me, we shake hands, I sit down. And then I didn't say anything. And he didn't say anything. So then I kept not saying anything. And he kept not saying anything. And we both didn't say anything. And we just looked around. And it was, to this day, one of my favorite things that I've ever done. Because we both picked up on the weirdness. The game. The game. And we just decided to go with it. And it yeah. was really beautiful. And I found over the years that some of my favorite laughs are when I say nothing. Yeah. It's funny. When I think of you, I do know you to be a, a very, very sharp wit, obviously. But I always think of you making some face at a guest. Like somebody comes on and they're just hamming and they're going too hard. And you just make the like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah face that gets the laugh before you you hit with the great line i think of the face first i mean that's what i think isn't it crazy to think that that guy that took that class is now known probably in the top three conan things he's got to be a dance you know what i mean it's a dance or it's a it's a nipple rub or whatever it is and i'm not saying that to be silly i'm saying that as another person lennon parham my improv teacher got behind me. I was playing a witch doctor and I kept going like, if you take the feather of a blue winged bird and you mash it in the, I was just doing all this stuff that I was saying. Yep. She was like, how does a witch doctor move? And she was like, you got to move like this. You got to like mirror yeah. me. And I was, and that was like a big breakthrough for me. And clearly you've learned that lesson as well. well. You know, it's, uh, there's, I, I love to watch the really old stuff and um, the, you know, and, and you realize that, Nothing's changed, you know, nothing's people, um, the ways of making people laugh haven't fundamentally changed. I think sarcasm probably didn't exist, you know, 150 years ago. (laughs) So maybe, so maybe there's, that might be different, but for the most part, the things that make us laugh are these great surprises and, um, and I was showing during this uh, pandemic, one of the things I've been doing is deciding, well, let's get as much of a silver lining as we can. So every night, pretty much at, at our house is movie night. And whenever I get to choose, I make sure they watch. It's a mad, 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 mad world that has all the great comedians from the 40s, 50s and 60s in it. I make sure that they watch all the Clouseau films with Peter Sellers, the Pink Panther movies. Um, and you just get to see, yeah, the old these are all moves I know and yeah. man, they're good. I and always think of the eunuch running away. 
Yes. And you can see you can see his prosthetic wiener bouncing. And it's one of the it's one of the funniest things. I saw it when I was like 15 and I couldn't believe I was seeing a prosthetic wiener bouncing. But it wasn't just that, it was how he ran. It's what it was what a eunuch is. Like he can't get an erection. That's Mad World, right? No, I don't think so. I don't know where it's you good. went on. I don't it's think it's good to be there's no eunuch in Mad Mad World. What's the movie where Mel Brooks goes, It's good to be king? Oh, oh, uh, you're think yes, uh, you're thinking of History of the World. Ah, fucking shit. Well, Jesus Christ, don't worry about it. You know, I just, think, <laughs> I think, I've just noticed one thing about you, Pete, which is anytime I bring up a classic comedy, you say, I love the part with the guy's wiener. And I'm just, <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is. I can say, oh, I love, I love it night at the opera with the Marx Brothers. Like, isn't it great yeah. when you see their dicks? And I'm like, no, you don't. You don't. You don't. <laughs> In the pe- in the peat cut, you do in my brain. Yeah, in your brain. I, oh my god, isn't it great when when Lucy's at the chocolate factory with Ethel and the conveyor belt <laughs> starts going way too fast, and then all these dicks start coming in? Remember that? Isn't that great? <laughs> 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 uh, I uh, yeah, I'll own that. I remember. It's funny. Speaking of your Letterman thing, my favorite late night appearance was when I did your show, and I would never burden you with remembering this. I'll remember for both of us. You were making fun of me for not wearing a jacket. Yeah. And I think either you or Andy said I looked like a used stereo salesman. <laughs> and I, I think it was you. And, um, and then I, I, I just think it's because so many of these things are rehearsed, and you know that, they're produced with a segment producer, and that's just how it is. It's not yep. bad or it's just what it is. In that moment, I stood up and, and asked for your coat, and you gave it to me. Yeah. And I put on your coat. And then I think we swapped spots and I just did like a nerd voice. And it was one of the, it was the first time I just went and everyone laughed because I'm making fun of the host. And it it was just one of those moments where I was like, oh, we did it. We, we had, I was supposed to talk about fucking pixie sticks, but instead we ate all the time just by joking. But, but I always think, you know, you've had a great, uh, you know, I, I, if, if you do a talk show and you didn't talk about people were laughing and you didn't get to one thing on the blue card. Yeah. Then, you know, you've had a, a sublime, perfect talk show appearance because, yeah. Uh, and, and it's not that, um, my favorite things have just happened. Like, you know, my, my favorite moments are just happenings. They're just things going wrong. And that, I think that's another thing, uh, in, in, comedy is it's this weird job where it's better when things go wrong now that's not true if you're a ceo at exxon or halliburton or you know but things going wrong are a gift in comedy if you're open to it if you're open to uh and and there's so much tension in the room if you do something and it doesn't work there's a lot of tension and if you have the presence of mind to say, well, that sucked. Yeah. Man, there's this power to that, you know, now then you've got to do something with it. You can't just say, well, that sucked because you then have to figure out what's the way out, but it is rocket fuel that you wouldn't have otherwise. Well, we're back to what I was saying about trying to create uh, something that you're not sure about. Like when you're young and you're trying to prove yourself, you have that built in. But later, the mistake is the gift that puts you on your heels. And everyone, that's why filmed improv will never be as good as live improv. But that's why, 
Yeah, it's like it's like a, a magic trick on television is never a, 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 as impressive as a magic trick right. person, and there's nothing they can do about it. They can't. <laughs> no matter what they do, you'll always think, well, you know, that's a camera trick. And it's like, no, 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 this is of course, amazing. Yeah. I, I've, or I've, they're fake people. They're stooges. Exactly. You know, I had a good example of this is when I first started my late night show, 93, 94. It's really early on. And I'm just getting hammered and everything's going badly. And people are saying this is a mistake. And then uh, at one point, um, the affiliate in Houston won't, the NBC affiliate won't even show me. They put me on at like three in the morning, which is a humiliation. But I decide someone has the idea I should go to Houston and shoot. What are people doing at three in the morning when my show really airs and try and watch it. <laughs> so I go to Houston and I'm driving around <laughs> at night. And so I really, you know, you lean into it. You lean yeah. the thing that, that, my instinct is let's not mention that I'm on at three in the morning in Houston. Cause that's humiliating. That would be my first instinct. And then your second instinct is, or yeah, let's make a whole show about it. So I right. went there and we're shooting and I'm in a bus station and this became one of our most popular clips. I'm in a bus station and I'm trying to shoot a thing where you can put a coin in. This is back in the day. This is how old this is. There used to be little coin operated TVs and bus stations that were welded to the arm of the bench you know, that you could sit on. So you would sit on the bench waiting for the bus and you'd put coins in and you could watch this terrible TV. So the joke was I was sitting there putting coins in trying to find my show at three o'clock in the morning when all of a sudden this big scary biker guy walks in as the cameras are rolling. And he says, what is this? What are you doing, Conan? What are you doing? We don't, and then, and and it's scary and it's weird and I look up at him and I go oh hi and he cuts me off and he goes we don't show that shit here we don't show that shit here and in 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 Houston we don't have that shit here and I it's really and I just said well hi uh, I'm Conan what's your name and he says Buffalo and it, it's this huge and I go oh Buffalo hi and he goes and where's your little fat friend we don't where's your fat friend and I went well that's not nice to say and. I'm sort of doing the back on his heels, Woody Allen, Nebishy, and he's really scary and threatening. And then we have it, we go back and forth and go, anyway, nice to meet you, Buffalo, and I wish you well. And, and he goes, like, well, we just don't show that shit here. And he wanders off. And I sit down and the camera stays at me and I look right in the camera and I said, okay, I was just almost murdered. And it became one of the biggest <laughs> on the anniversary show. And uh, it was all not scripted and real and raw. Yeah. But I always thought you can learn so much from that moment of just yeah, just playing with what's really happening. Yeah, it's, being- it's it's redemption. I think that's it's not just one of the key things that we love in comedy. It's one of the key things we love in earth would like to think that the universe is arcing towards redemption in that moment. You're taking something that was legitimately scary and shifting it. It's like Mike Birbiglia says, you're the joke later, which is a great line of his where I'm like, that's, it feels so good even just to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I find, do you find, because you've done, um, I'm curious about this. You are very good at going out on a stage and 
talking for, you know, 45 minutes or an hour and doing your comedy. But then you have these other experiences. Obviously, you can do crowd work. But in the podcast, you can talk to people. I've always found that if my voice, if I'm the only one talking for too long, mm. I feel like I'm, I don't have my superpower. But if other people are involved, I yeah. feel like I can find it and I can... What's your experience with it? I think that's such a great hurdle to have to get over and to identify it because it means you're paying attention to like what is funny and what makes you come alive. And I had that same problem coming from improv into standup until I don't know if I thought of it or if someone helped me think of it or someone just said it, but it's like you are improvising or you are having a conversation. It's just they're talking in laughs. So like you can, I call it throwing to myself. I think that's just what we all call it maybe. You're riffing, you're doing crowd work, but it's with you. So often what I'll do is I'll say something and I'll just be like, oh, you know, now, now I go across the street and I'm afraid if they don't have a mask and they don't laugh. And I go, uh, I guess a lot of people have said that. Well, maybe not a lot of people. You know, you just go yes. into that like, yeah. now you're, you're finding your scene partner and it's your anxiety or you're finding your scene partner and it's a weird noise that they made. I know you do that. And I've seen you do that, but that's how I tell myself, you're not really alone. The way they show stand-up in TV and movies, like they, it's always like just a guy dying in a light. And I'm like, that's not what's happening. There's a lot of information being exchanged. Yes. And it's, and it's not my mantra before I go on stage is I say, it's not about the words. I say that out loud. I go, it's not about the words because it's about the words are an excuse to share a space wherein to be silly and to discover stuff together to play. And if I start thinking like, well, how does that joke go? Do I say this part first or that part? I just have to go. It's not about that. I know you know that it's not. Yeah. You know, there's a good example of this, which I heard it makes perfect sense. Hitchcock used to completely storyboard his movies with all the visuals and all the scenes and what the audience is going to see. And once he had that, would go back and write the dialogue. Whoa. And when I, if you look at North by Northwest or Psycho or, you know, just any of his classic movies, you can see that, yeah, that's, mm. that's why they're so good is the words and, and the words are great, but they're secondary. He was, right. he, made, he just decided it's just what you said was the words are not important. And mm. I have found that if you put yourself out there and you're just listening, sometimes you can get, I mean, my favorite laughs are saying nothing. My favorite laughs are, you know, we've had um, like Mickey Glazer will come on the show and she'll be talking she, you know, and not in a cheap way. She's very funny and sharp, and she'll, she'll, she'll be talking in this very funny way about her vagina. And I'm not, she'll be going on and on about how she's not happy with how it looks. And she'll say, it looks like a hastily packed suitcase. And they'll just be cuts to me. And I'm not saying anything. And I'm not even looking at the camera and doing, I'm doing absolutely <laughs> nothing. But I have a, slight you can see my thin lips are getting a little thinner and and my i'm pale but i'm a little paler 
and I'm not moving. I'm not moving at all. And the crowd's just laughing and she'll keep going on and on about it. And I'll realize, well, this is, if I jumped in and started to say, well, well, tell me more about that. Yeah. All right. right." You know, it's no, 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 that's no good. That's no good. Now's the time. When a woman's talking about her vagina, it's time for the man to shut up <laughs> and let it all play out, you know? That's that's really, really funny. Yeah, I, I wonder, I, this is a leading question, so feel free to duck it. But like I've uncovered psychologically for me growing up, I didn't really feel like I was being super listened to all the time. Mm-hmm. You've met, you've met my parents. They're, they're wonderful people, but they're sort of like me. They can be in their own world or they're, they're hopefully like I used to be. I, I'd like to think I'm growing, but like of, it comes from a place of like the reason I love talking to you is because you get a very high pitched. This person is listening to me. The reason I like talking to an audience is I'm getting this constant flow of feedback proof that they're listening to me. I wonder if you, as a kid, were, were craving that. Were you looking for like somebody to really see you? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I've talked about this a lot, but classic middle child syndrome, but six kids in my family born three months apart, um, <laughs> you know, in the Irish Catholic tradition. Uh, <laughs> and you could, and, you know, both parents working. And so, I remembered for a long time as a kid feeling like, well, I don't have a personality. You know, my oldest brother, Neil, he's the this way. And then Luke's that way. And I felt the exact same way. This is why I bought a a leather studded jacket. I was like, maybe I'm a punk rocker. Like I bought a leather studded jacket. Yeah. I was like, is this it? (laughs) No, it's ridiculous. But (laughs) I went through so many phases where I was like, a monocle. Maybe I'm the guy that wears a monocle, you know? <laughs> Did oh, you really? <laughs> no, I didn't wear a monocle. But but I remember, <laughs> like, I remember thinking, I'm a drummer. And I, I'm going to have sticks in my back pocket. And I'm like, I'm not a drummer. You know, I'm, no. No, I really did. And then I thought, I'm government guy who knows a lot about government. And I'm going to one day be a great civil servant. I'm not, I'm not that. I don't, I don't like any of that. I remember I kept putting... Tr- it's almost like you're trying on costumes from a hastily packed suitcase. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, But like, you're just trying things. And I was like, I'm literary guy. I'm not literary guy. And, and trying these different things. And then finally, um, I was kind of reminded of, and again, this is your listeners may not know what I'm talking about, but when I was a kid, there was a very popular toy uh, like a craft toy that you could get a craft that it was, you'd get this block of what looked like um, marble or something. And it was, you know, like a bike six inches high and three inches, you know, uh, deep, you know, and you'd chip away at it with like a toy chisel and the outside was really soft. And then when you chiseled it all away, there was a statue inside it of, mm a classic statue and it's, and then you got to paint it and it was this really goofy thing. Like basically they just took a statue, a toy statue and then covered it in some, and that was hard. And then they covered it in some less hard clay, but the, the feeling was that you were doing it, that you were like Michelangelo. And so, (laughs) and so it's a really dumb toy uh, or gift or craft. And it was meant for kids like six to eight, but I always remember thinking, 
that's a little like being in your uh, growing up because there is this you you're supposed to be that's in there and you're hacking away at it and you have no, that was the other thing with this game was this. You had no idea. You had no idea. Like, what is this going to be? You found it by doing, by chiseling away. That's what I found is that there was this me that was there and it just took years and years and years to figure it out. And, mm. and I thought I had it pretty well figured out in 93 when I got the show. And then it turned out, nope, there's still a lot more to figure out. And it happened on the air. And now there's, you know, so I, I think that's going back to your first question. It's like, what keeps you going is you keep looking for, is there this other thing that I can do that I don't know yet? Or is this other mm part I'm supposed to play that I haven't found yet. And so it can sound a little mystical, but I I do think it's that curiosity. Um, Is there, is there another act here? Is there another thing? You know, and when I say act, I don't mean shtick. I mean, is there another act to this play or is this kind of it? And then I, I, so, but you're looking, you're looking and I, I look at myself whenever I see pictures of me from, 70s or the 80s or even the early 90s i'm like man he's still trying to figure it out you know he's Mm. he's 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 dressing this way because he doesn't know and now he's this kind of guy and then he's trying to be that kind of guy and he's just it, it, it took years of chiseling away to find out that i'm really a statue of the adonis (laughs) <laughs> I have so much about that. You t- let's start with this because you told me a great piece of advice. Yep. Um, let me see if I can load you into it without giving it away about hitting a consistent note. Yep. Would you mind sharing that? Cause it reminds me of what you're saying. Well, uh, it never, um, this was my, my philosophy. Uh, I think somewhat is that, I think we all dream of coming out and, you know, there's a suddenly stealing focus and everyone's like, who's that guy? Who's that Pete Holmes? You know, and suddenly you light up and you're the big hit and everyone else melts away and you're, you become the star of the show. And I think that's what people fantasize about. And that's how it's portrayed in movies often as, you know, then that one night someone broke their leg and I stepped up and I was really nervous and my voice squeaked. And then, but then suddenly I did this and, and I was the talk of the town. And then there's a yeah. montage of, of, of the person uh, becoming huge. Um, I think to me, it's always felt like uh, there's a lot of noise out there and I, I liken it a little bit to everybody's, playing their instruments and every, and it's very discordant and everyone's playing a different instrument and hitting a million different notes. And it's a lot of noise and there's big, and all, and sometimes I feel like I just have a little triangle and I'm just going ding, ding, ding. But if I can make that sound good and if I can play it consistently over time, people are going to go, you hear that triangle? You're picking up on that, you know, and that's always been, um, and, and that's always, I think, been my sort of hum- having some humility about it. Just no, figure out what it is I do, try and play that note clearly. And over time that note will be heard. 
It'll and stand out because of the consistency. Consistency and because it's unique. And yeah. that's always been my hope anyway. Um, and it means, uh, you know, we have such a culture of uh, such a short attention span culture. And we have such, there's so much, you think about it, there used to be, used to be like 15 people in show in big time show business. You know, there was like yeah, Frank Sinatra, yeah. Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis, you know, uh, there, there was, there literally were like 15 and everybody knew who everybody was. There's Bing Crosby. And, you know, and he, he's going to bicker now with Bob Hope and Bob Hope's going to bicker with Milton Berle and, and, right. and Milton Berle's going to joke about, you know, make a joke about, someone took my joke from my joke vault and I should quit paying my writers so much. And there's Jack Benny. He's cheap. And there's yeah. Martin. He, he drinks too much. And there's Frank Sinatra. He's the chairman of the board. Everyone's scared of him. And so everyone was in on the joke because there were so, it was a club they were in and things were so homogeneous in a way. And now of course we live in this world where there's just um, hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people in show business by way of mm-hmm. social media. And um, so in, in a way, I feel like now more than ever, you have to just kind of try and figure out what you want to do and what feels right to you and what what's the message you want to put out there and what's the kind of work you want to do and just try and try and do that to the best of your ability. Yeah. And if your habit is to check, am I on a BuzzFeed list? Did they write about me on Vulture? You're going to be disappointed because, you know, yeah, every now and then you'll get a nice mention for something. But if, if, you're, if, the, if you're just looking for that kind of Kardashian attention, it's not going to happen. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. In this culture. Oh, it can. I'm shocked at how many times I forget that. Like I'll see a list come out and I'm like, what are you doing, Petey? This isn't what we're in this for. Like scrolling through. Yep. Ah, they gave it to Mulaney. You know what I mean? Like, like, well, what are you doing? You didn't get into this for a list. I also wonder if you feel this way. I'm sort of, I not sort of, I am grateful that when I was young, YouTube and Instagram and all these things didn't exist because I might've thrown all of my will into them, failed in a way that doesn't matter, right? but because I was sensitive, I would have taken it. I'm going to tell this so briefly, just because I think you'll like it. The listeners have heard it before. But Gary Larson, who did The Far Side, yeah. he, he submitted it to 50 papers. He didn't hear back. He got frustrated. He drove to Chicago, and he sold it. He gets home. He has 50 rejection letters. And he's like, if I had stayed home and gotten the rejection letters, I would have quit. But I'm so glad I left town and was instead pitching it in Chicago and selling it instead of getting that. I'm afraid that if I had been on Instagram when I was in my 20s, I would have gotten so much hate or failure or whatever, thought it really mattered, right. and then never have like breached, I don't want to say real show business, but like this show business, yeah. the, the Hollywood show business. Do you feel similarly? Like what Well, I feel in- like everyone grows up in their time, and there's advantages and disadvantages. I do... I have sympathy for people today. I think it, it must be tough. Um, I was, uh, I mean, I was thinking about it. 
I was in comedy a long time and did a lot of stuff. And I, uh, but there was very little, like, there was a lot of stuff for me that happened where I was making people laugh and there was nobody, there was, it was not taped. It wasn't filmed. And I was very grateful for that later on, you know, because I always used to think it's nice to go off and be bad um, (laughs) with no one watching. And I think now uh, nobody does anything without recording it and putting it out there. That's how you do it by making it public is what it is. Like that's what doing it means. Yeah. And so, um, and there's, and of course, you know, there's so many different gradations. There are people that earn a pretty decent living just saying, this is what I ate and this is what I'm wearing today. And so that gets thrown into the same pot with somebody who worked really hard and thought of a sketch, you know, it, it can get confusing. And I would, I, so I think how does, and, and clearly people do because there are all these really funny uh, young people out there that are doing great work, but I do think they're up against more difficulties because there's so much noise. There's just so much noise out there that it'd be very hard. And let's say you are really funny, really prolific there's uh, a million outlets that want your comedy special and what they want to do is get it and then stream it and jam it down people's throats. And then suddenly you've been working for three years to get this great set and it's done. What's your next one? Now that's existed for a while, but I think it, it, you know, uh, it's a little bit more like a fire hose now. I agree. Yeah. It's and and I, I do think that it's, uh, people can do, really great work now and be overlooked. And so, um, you know, it's, again, we're going back to the yin and the yang. Yes. It's easier probably to be seen, but many more people are being seen. So being seen means less than it used to mean, which means what you do needs to be that much better. So, you know, I, I always go back to, I'm, I'm glad that I, for advantages and disadvantages, I'm happy that I came up when I did. Uh, the idea of trying to make it starting from scratch now would scare the hell out of me. I wouldn't, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, me I, too. Wouldn't, I wouldn't know what to do. I'm, I'm glad that I made. Well, how many, how many people watched the, the old, your first show? I mean, wouldn't it be millions of people? Yeah. Be millions and millions of people saw, I mean, the first one in 93, I mean, we used to, I don't remember, but I'm sure we had a lot of people tune in that, especially that first night and we would do, you know, specials every now and then. And yeah, you'd get millions and millions of people watching. And I, and, and that it's so fragmented now. Um, but it's funny. I don't, you know, you, you can sometimes think, well, am I going to turn into a grumpy old man who's saying, well, in my day, you know, there was lots of people. And I think, well, it's fewer people watch each thing, but then sometimes I'll look at the YouTube numbers. And if you do something really good, like 40 million people will watch watch the thing you did that that people really liked. And I'll think, okay, that's actually an advantage now that if you do something that really catches with people um, over time, it's crazy how many people see it. You know, it can, the numbers can just add up and then, uh, it travels worldwide. And if, if, um, 
you know, I'm lucky that some of the stuff I do is very physical and silly and not topical. So I'll be hearing, I'll meet people that barely speak any English that are from a completely different part of the world that say, oh, I love that. I saw that video you did. And I'll think, well, that's different. That didn't exist in the 90s. In the 90s, you either saw me at 1235 on NBC or you didn't see me. Yeah. But now we're in this amazing world where, you know, I can uh, do all this stuff while I'm in Korea and really connect with the people in Korea and get fans for life who I think get me. uh, And they, why, why now? This is crazy. It's all because of the internet. So it is sort of miraculous. It's, I don't pretend to understand it. I try not to overthink it. Um, But it is a give and a take. Yeah, I think so. I, I think everything is eventually, you know, you, uh, it's that you always go back to that. I know that you're into this stuff and I, I find it really helpful too, <laughs> but, but that Buddhist thing of, um, the, the monk who just kept saying, perhaps, you know, uh, you know, they go up to the monk and they say, um, oh, this is such good fortune. I understand that you, you have a brand new home. And uh, it's up on the top of that hill. That's such good fortune. And he goes, perhaps. And then a flood comes and his house washes away. And they go, this is terrible. Your house on the hill is gone now. This was, must be terrible. And he goes, perhaps. But because it washed away, it exposed some gold. So now he has gold. And they go, this is great. You have gold now. Isn't that terrific? Perhaps. But because he has gold, some thieves come and see, you know, and it just keeps going yeah. back and yeah. forth. And yeah, just keeps that's keeping. my aristocrats. I like telling that joke. Yeah. Like I've never, I've never wanted to tell the joke where it's like, and then she shits in her face. Like, yeah, I don't yeah, like yeah. that. I like telling that Zen thing. That's my aristocrat. No, I, but I, I mean, that is when people try, when you do interviews and people or, or people try to tease out. So is it better today or worse today? You want to say, you know, it's better today, right? You go, perhaps. So it's yeah. worse today. Perhaps. So it's yeah. better that we have the internet. Perhaps. I mean, it's worse that we have the internet. Perhaps. You know, yeah. um, it's, it's, uh, um, and, and I do feel that way you mentioned being on lists. Like, if someone tells me, hey, you're on a list of funny people, I always feel perhaps. I always feel like, well, yeah. that just means I won't be on it next year. And who yeah. else is on it? And then they'll mention someone else will be on it that you love but then someone else will be on it and you're like, wait a minute, that guy's on it. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And then the next year you're not on the list. So wait, you're going to feel good about yourself one year and then not good about yourself the next year. It, it, yeah. So I, I do think there is uh, each generation figures out how to make it work or has their challenges, how to figure it, how to, out how to make it work in their time, in their time frame. you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, you know, we're, so I, I just keep, I like the challenge of, okay, I've been doing this for a really long time, but how can I try to make something humorous today from my house during a coronavirus that will go out there and might resonate with some people um, and feel like it's very me. So that's the challenge today, you know? Yeah. You told me something like that. Uh, you also said, I think it was when I was doing your show as a guest, you said, 
it's funny, you'll do a show that you think will break the internet. Everyone's going to be talking yeah. about it. And then, you know, some people maybe, but not really. And he goes, and then you do a show where you're like, they, they're going to see that I'm a fraud. They're going to cancel me. And no one's really talking about it. Mm-hmm. And I carry that with me to every show, certainly every late night appearance that I do. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, there's so much power in freedom. It's kind of the perhaps yeah. of yeah. performance. You're yeah. like, yeah. But when you, you know, know there's, a, there's a great uh, saying, um, and I can't believe I'm blanking on his name right now because I know uh, this guy. Jesus of Nazareth. There you go. Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> uh, character actor Richard Kind. Yes. Um, uh, you know it's ridiculous that I'm blanking on his name because it's a very famous uh, producer and I'll think of it in a second but he was um, he was a guy who had worked with Jack Benny for years and been Jack Benny's producer and then he was the producer of The Tonight Show and a legendary producer of The Tonight Show and I'll think of his name in a second. It's crazy that I can't, but that's, that's the aging process. And when you <laughs> huff gasoline, this is what happens. Um, <laughs> but, oh, uh, um, he, uh, he had this saying, and he actually said it to me in person, which is, it's never as good and it's never as bad. Yeah. And I was like, wow. Meaning, uh, it, it, it's a little depressing. You can choose which way you want to look at it. Is this depressing that it's never as good as you thought? It's never as bad. But it's especially true in television. Television, and I think it translates to stuff online, it has this way of you can be in, you can just feel this absolute elation while you're doing it, and the crowd's with you, and everything's in sync, and you think, I'm going to get a Nobel Peace Prize for this show. <laughs> I bet it's in the mail. I bet they're mailing it to me right now from Oslo. This is such a good show. And you hear like, you don't hear much about it. And then you'll yeah. have another show where you'll think, oh my God, they're going to they're gonna cancel us halfway through. This is embarrassing. <laughs> Why would anyone, and you don't really hear about that one either. Yeah. And so, yeah. I don't know. I, um... I think you're living like a magnified, there is a deep lesson here. When you talk about seeing yourself as a bike messenger and not remembering, yeah. it also reminded me of Steve Martin told a story of hearing himself on Sirius radio and he was laughing, but he didn't know it was him. He was like, who is this young kid? He's hilarious. Oh, and that's, at oh, the that's end, great. They go with Steve Martin, which I love, but it's like, um, you're realizing that life is written on running water. Yeah. And that's either sad or it's not. But yeah. you're sort of thrown into the situation where you really need to figure out, is the fact that the moment is all we have, that this podcast is all we're doing right now, yeah. that you and I, I think we've talked about the archives of Johnny Carson's show and how, you know, like, are people throwing on an episode from 1971? I, I don't know. I don't, some people well, are. Well, the other thing, first of all, before I forget, was Freddie DeCordova was the producer. Uh, so I, I just want to give a shout out to Freddie DeCordova and his, his sort of Buddhist mantra, it's never as good and it's never as bad, which is also perhaps, and, and you know, what you just said is where you can choose to be either depressed or elated uh, about the fact that everything we're doing is uh, writing on, on water. Um, you know, think about it. It's interesting you bring up Carson and his archives because Johnny 
did his show for 30 years and it was the biggest show in America. And it's, you know, still thought of as like the archetypal gold standard, you know, late night show. And most of it, most of them were thrown away. Most of them, they were all stored uh, in New Jersey and sometime in the mid seventies, some accountant at NBC said, Hey, what are we paying for all this? What's all this space in New Jersey? And someone said, oh, those are old wow. Carson tapes. And he was like, well, get rid of it. Because at the time, no one thought, they thought of these shows as they air that night, they're over. And yeah, yeah. there's a couple of clips we've saved for anniversary shows. But they don't have all of, I mean, Johnny Carson's, I don't think they have his first 10 years. I don't think they have, wow. he went on in 62 from like 62 to 72. And then I don't think, I think there's a big chunk of um, the 70s that's missing. And so they've got a few little clips here and there, but mostly there's all this amazing stuff of a young Johnny Carson interviewing Groucho Marx or Jack Benny or Jonathan Winters or, you know, doing all this stuff. uh, And it's gone. It's just gone. And I've... So that's how I feel about the Tiger King reality show footage. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't watch it. You did watch it. I do. I, yeah, I watched it. Yeah. It's just, Uh, I should have got a, should have got a bigger laugh. No, but you know what? He, uh, (laughs) I was just couldn't believe he didn't back up his back up that footage, man. I know. You know what? uh, There's a Buddhist expression for when people die, they, they don't say they died. They say his library burned down. Isn't that sort of like a poetic. Is that true? That's like, it's a euphemism. It, it's an expression. They'll right. say like, yeah, uh, Johnny's library burned down, like when he passed. That's you, know what, you, know what, you know what they should do? It makes me now think we all have to back up our lives. Like you have, oh, to, you have to make up, you have to back up. They need to make, uh, Apple has to make something like this massive hard drive. And no, I think that's going to happen. Your kids, I think, are going to live in a world where you know how you think it's crazy if you haven't backed up your phone in a month. That's how they're going to be like. People just used to go out into the world where you could get hit by a car or fall in a volcano and like you just didn't back yourself up. But like what we'll be backing up is certainly literally the question of philosophy for the Well, the other thing is we have the, the existential question of we now have, we'll soon have a generation that lived, you know, people that lived 85 years that have a photograph of every meal they ever ate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where are those photographs going? Now, they're in the cloud, but they're taking up some server space. And as we all know, go to a graveyard and um, after, uh, you know, uh, after 10, 15 years, not that many people are going to the grave anymore because people (laughs) get on with their own lives and then they die. So graveyards are often filled with people who, who no one attends their grave because anyone who knew them is gone. So right. that's what's going to be happening is our legacy there's, is going to be uh, just billions and billions and trillions of photographs of look at this slice. This ah. is, you know, look, look, <laughs> look at this. I had this incredible raspberry sorbet click and yeah, yeah. You don't know who ate it. Why did they? Why did they take a photo of it? You know. Well, in Amsterdam, they they uh, cycle through the the graveyards. I went to something called the Museum of Death, and it was all these exhumed 
glasses and monocles and weird things that they find in people's graves because the land to bury people is so scarce that every 70 years, 50 years, they dig it up. See, and I'm for that. I, when I, when I, I, I'm going to piss some people off, but, <laughs> but whenever I pass, you know, when I pass like just beautiful, beautiful, uh, you know, countryside or land in, in an area where there isn't a lot of land. And that's just dense with graves. And I think, like New well, York when you're yeah, coming in from the airport coming in from the airport. And I think yeah. that should just be huge fields that like kids can play in like people yeah. that are alive now, you yeah. know? And, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I, I don't believe in, I don't want to take up space like that. I've always said when I go, I want to be left naked in a field so that I can be found by um, kids and frighten them. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and you want to be a New York Post headline. Yeah. <laughs> but to, to make what we were saying less depressing, because it, there are two ways to look at it. I think the depression of everything being written on running water yep. or the Johnny Carson shows have been uh, sold off by some middle management guy. The, the, so that is sad, right? The other side of it is what so many people seem to have figured out, equanimous people have figured out, which is the gift then is the present moment. If everything is just a memory and the future doesn't exist yet, it, it in, imbues the moment with added richness. This is a Ramdas quote that otherwise would be spent on denial of death. But like when you make peace with that, mm -hmm. you can actually lock into this. And and enjoy the moment. Enjoy you, today's talk show. That's have, that's what I mean. You're in the pressure cooker. You got. Have you ever? Uh, you've seen footage of a lava flow, right? Like sure. molten lava, and they'll show it be often like in Hawaii. And what I always I noticed this a while ago is that the the front edge is glowing and really cool to look at, and then because it's a lava flow, it's a river. The front edge is glowing and shooting off steam and has this like yellow orange intensity and then it rolls over and uh is then on the bottom of the lava and the front <laughs> then there's a new front which is pulling <laughs> and what ha and that thing that you were just looking at that captured your imagination is underneath now and it's quickly turning into gray stone <laughs> and yeah, just like, yeah. i'm just like yeah it's i've always thought I'm not smart enough to figure out how this is a euphemism or an analogy, but I know that intuitively that is what we're doing is we just is try and live in that part and as best you can, because the rest of it just calcifies. It just, yeah. it, and then hardens. And then later on, you're just, uh, you know, you're someone's uh, stone bathroom floor. Um, yeah. But see free, <laughs> free people, People who have been diagnosed with something terminal are, are often can become free or just other people that achieve it other ways seem to have that awareness that they are the briefly glowing lava at the front. Right. And they're the ones. So Eckhart Tolle, who I love, is a great teacher. Yeah, of he's mine. great. He's great. I, and I've, I've not met him, but I've I've listened. I've to, also not met him. I've also uh, I, but I've, I've listened to his tapes. And there's yeah. one thing. I'll let you get to your point in a second. No, Remember please. earlier when I said it's important to listen? And uh, Oh, my God. <laughs> I now got something I want to say, and so shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, uh, blah, blah, blah. No, Eckhart Tolle, I was once <laughs> listening to 
think it's his second book or something. And he does, he's on tape and he's talking about the madness of the ego and, and uh, the ego has created madness. And he was going on and on about people who are self-centered and they can never really be in the moment. And I was driving my car, listening to this tape and getting a lot of like good stuff from it. And he went, and we often see that the, the worst of these people, the worst of these people are often the comedians we see on television. No, <laughs> yeah. no, like, no. He, no, he says like the tele- oh, television. Oh, my God. Who are, who are just, everything's a joke and they're never quite, they're, it's all noise and they're trying to fill themselves up with noise. And he was basically describing what I Hard do lines. for a living. And yeah. I slow, I remember it, I was on the 405 freeway and I pulled over to the breakdown lane put the car in park and put my head on the steering wheel. Oh my God. <laughs> I felt like I'm listening and he's like, but then the worst, the worst of all of them. And I think he's going to say, <laughs> I think he's going to say, I think he's going to say the dictators are the worst. You <laughs> what know? if he said, and you knew in that moment there was a chance he might be like, like Conan O'Brien. Yeah, you know, the Look people, him. the Conan O'Brien's, the sick manifestation of ego gone wild with madness. <laughs> You can always s- turning yeah. in desperation to Andy to see if their riff has any prudence. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pretending he has strings on his hips and then cutting the string <laughs> and rubbing his nipple in a sad display of cosmic immaturity, <laughs> noise without meaning, fury well, without this actually, death. This ties into your improv teacher because he says, I've heard him be critical of being clever. Yeah. Because he's like, if you're clever, all you're doing is thinking about things. And all these spiritual teachers are, are talking about the danger in objectifying everything. If it's an object, then you can have a relationship with it through thought. So you have no thoughtless, meaning free experience of just a garden. You're just going like, why is it called a rose? We could have called it a tutor. That would be different. A tutor by any other name would be just as sweet. Right. Like that would have changed history. Right. Like this right. is why our brains are robbing us of enjoying a botanical garden. Well, you could look at it another way, which is that all of these great philosophers like Eckhart Tolle are just jealous of comedians. What if, <laughs> what if they're just... What if they're just not funny and they hate oh my God. and they hate comedians? And so they're always like, and the worst is being clever or being funny or saying something that makes someone else laugh. This just shows <laughs> how sick you are inside and how you the way never, Right. You're just like the no. way that you came up to me in high school and took my apple yeah. and pulled my briefs over my head. <laughs> You are the worst with your jokes. Like yeah. He's having yeah. his, his cosmic revenge. Yeah, he's having his cosmic revenge. He's trying to say that anyone who's clever or instills laughter is should is just is, is a sick ego gone mad. And he's <laughs> like, okay, all right. So basically, I'm, three really. There was a girl you had a crush on, but there was a guy who was really funny in class who got the girl. Yeah, it's hilarious. That's it. I'm going to devote myself. That's <laughs> the fight against cleverness. It's the fuck you clown of people. You know yes, that joke? exactly. Like, it's, it's fuck you clown. I was going to say he recommends, and I do this, and I love it. It's, it's hard to do, but I do do. <laughs> you just um, said do do, and you know it. I know. And that's I the be- Maybe that's, that should be the clip from this whole show. <laughs> but it's in Jersey, man. This clip's in Jersey. It's oh. going to be sold off. Um, what I'm saying is he would have, he suggests that you watch time-lapse footage, like sped up 
or uh, time corrected, meaning the frame rate is corrected, footage of like the turn of the century, like New York City. Yeah. These are on YouTube. New York City, turn of the century. If you just watch it silently and consider that everyone in that video is dead, has, they're all dead, but they all have problems. They're all in a rush. Yeah. They're all like, I got to get to work. They're getting in a Model A and they're trying to get to their job. And everything seems so real. So this is the other side of the conundrum of everything being written on water. The free person goes, it's written on water. What a miracle that I'm here right now. Yeah. And all of that story is just robbing me of the richness. It's funny that you mention that because I'm obsessed with turn of the century footage. And I wow. love that you know it's um like what they did uh with they shall not grow old where they can take the footage oh yeah and they can make these adjustments so it was very easy to look at footage from 1910 say new york 1910 and say yeah that doesn't i can't relate to that because those people are all walking in a real herky-jerky way and it's all grainy and they're not like me that's from a different universe but when they slow the, when they correct yeah. motion correct yep. footage, and you can see that they're just like us, they're just yeah. wearing way too many clothes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and their teeth are terrible. Uh, yeah. But um, when you when you look at I look I look at that footage sometimes, and I was just looking at some. There's some motion corrected footage of New York, and you see like a ferry coming in. And people getting off the ferry and you see, and I always try and pick out individual people. And I see, oh, there's that guy whose job is to grab the rope and tie the rope and he does it. And then he helps lower. And then all these mostly uh, horses and carriages come off. There's a few cars, but they're pretty crude. Yeah. Um, And I'll just pick individual people and think, yeah, they're all doing their thing and they're gone. They're all gone, and all of them had stuff to do, but no one. There's no record of what any of them were up to, and right. And if there is, that that person was a one in a two hundred million, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright or somebody famous, or and they might know a little bit about what they were up to, but most of it's just gone. And I think when you can channel that, you know, we're now living in this time where I do think people there are people that are checking their phones every day and trying to find what their status is, how many likes they got. And they're being driven mad by it. They're being driven insane. It doesn't mean anything. That's that's why it's not to depress you. And if you find one that has like Jeff Buckley's hallelujah over it, like, just forget it. Like you're the rest of your day, your heart's going to be so wide open. You're not going to be able to like look another person in the eyes without crying. Right. But there's the sad part of it. It sounds like we're moping, but I really find that these are edifying. It's like another uh, spiritual practice that I have is, what were you worried about a month ago? So when my problems and my, as Eckhart Tolle would say, my emotions are very overwhelming, it's like, you just need to know they're like waves. They come and they go and they come and they go. And there's a peace to be found in that. So when you look at other people, or you could look at yourself and just say, what would... You don't even remember being the bike messenger. That that Conan was very worried yeah. about whether or not somebody at a party thought that you called them fat or whatever it was. Right. Like you were like you were anxious about that, and it's gone. 
So there's like a real sizzle of a wave on the beach that you can rest in and go, if it's not achieving, if it's not overcoming problems, if it's not getting to work on time, what is the point? Some people would say nothing. I would say there's a bigger point that like, you know, I won't get into that. Well, no, I, I <laughs> to, to put a button on it, to put a button on it, I, everything I've said, if anyone listening to this thinks that I'm being a downer or I'm, I'm not, it's actually the opposite. These are the things that I find freeing. I find that because I have a very regimented Catholic upbringing and I've always thought everything was really important. And then I was, you know, um, I put a lot of pressure on myself to make stuff that I thought, because it was all so important. And so I've found that uh, this way of thinking has helped me immeasurably. And I don't know if I could have thought this way in my 20s or 30s. I think some of it's just getting older. And now that I'm finally 40, I'm able. That's hilarious. What? Did I'm 40? <laughs> really? We, we should really film these because you just stared at me waiting for me to. And I was just like, I'm going to let it ride. Let it play. I was born. Now I got to do the math really quickly. <laughs> you were born in, you were born in 1980. Yes. Um, uh, no, I, I, uh, I, I am 56 and. I think, you know, this is a, we, I know we have, uh, people are obsessed with being young and everything. I've enjoyed myself more as I've gotten older. I just calm down a bit and, um, I, one of my favorite expressions, no, no wise man ever wished to be younger. I, I think that's so right on. Except for the erections. (laughs) <laughs> oh, man. i mean can i ask you those were in, those were incredible you know <laughs> i think you're thinking of a history of the world uh the thing that i this is not to talk about leno i i, I right. personally don't care about that but you've alluded to several times in your life having been reduced to rubble yeah and what my teachers have shown me is that when you survive the thing you thought you couldn't survive. Yeah. And yet you remain. It makes you question who you are. I don't like, like the story of who you are, the way yeah. you perceive. It. Yeah. Was that your experience? And again, I'm not talking about. Oh, I, went through it a mil- I mean, it doesn't even yeah. have to be that. I went through it. And uh, I mean, I honestly think there are probably seven different points in my life where I thought that's it. It's over. Um, and people famously know about, you know, the, the time in 2009, 2000, 2010 with the tonight show, but they, but I, what are the other ones? Yeah. Well, uh, uh, 1993, when I started the late night show, um, uh, uh, and, and that looked, and I mean, (laughs) by every measure, it was a failure immediately by, you know, critically (laughs) and, and uh, ratings and it just every across the board. And it was just a brutal uh, two year spanking machine I had to go through. And, and I don't moan about that because um, you know, it was just, it was what I needed to go through. And it was, it was, you know, I was replacing uh, Letterman, you know, and in it. And so no one knew who I was. And so it all made sense, but it just was something that 
uh, was really tough. And then, I, I mean, I could just keep going back through my life and finding moments where I really thought, well, it's over. Uh, you know, I, my career hasn't worked out. Um, I'm not getting where I need to go. And my best days are behind me. I mean, I had thoughts, thoughts like that in my 20s. And I had thoughts like that. You know, I was a very insecure uh, student. Uh, so I had a lot of insecurity. People think of me as someone who probably sailed through school. And that wasn't the case. I was very insecure about, you know, my ability. And so there just were many times where I was like in a despair about, well, this is it. I'll never amount to anything. And I just think that going through those has been elemental for me. It's been really important. And mm. I try and say to people, to young people, I really like, this sounds creepy. I really like young people, but um, I really do get a lot of, I, I love working with young writers, young people who are like in their twenties and they, I find it so life affirming. I just, you know, that, People can be so talented and funny and have a complete, you know, be so young. And I, I always try to cheer them up by telling them, trust me, you're going to have seven different times where you think you've completely blown it. Yeah. And uh, it's funny. Oh, keep going. Well, just, you know, like Nixon, you'll rise again. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you know, you mentioned being Catholic. One of my, maybe my greatest teacher right now, Richard Rohr is a Franciscan. And he was writing about, I always thought it was weird that uh, the Catholic cross has Jesus on it. Yeah. And, and he's converted me, meaning I now think it's completely appropriate, still a little bit eerie to have Jesus up there because his thing is that the point of Christianity is winning through losing that God is, or truth is, or reality is revealed to you. The mystery winks at you in those moments. And I don't mean that in a Western way, like sure. Conan had two years of the spanking machine, but look at him now, baby. I don't mean that. That's like how, you know, I don't want to, other people might put that. I'm talking about like something deep and profound that was transformed and changed right. within you that has nothing to do with your bank account or your, how many vulture lists you're on. But and I'd like to get into, I'd like, if you don't mind, I'd like to get into my yeah. bank account and the number of vulture lists I've been on. Because <laughs> mm, let's just say, mm, things are swimming. Uh, no, but I mean, no, you're, you're, you're right. You can just, uh, um, and I, I think we're all going through a time right now where I don't care who you are or what you've achieved when, I mean, the craziness of this COVID-19 pandemic and it, it, it feels like whatever you think you've built in your life, uh, whatever you think you've accomplished is just, you, yeah, you made this intricate, clever thing on an Etch-a-Sketch and then something comes along and, and it takes it. it. <laughs> yeah, you gotta, yeah. Like, yeah, that, you know, I mean, we've all had moments of, you know, thinking, uh, oh, okay, this is something that I couldn't even imagine three months ago or four months ago. I just couldn't even, you know, if someone said to you or any of us or anyone listening right now, six months ago, yeah, a pandemic, we're all going to be in our homes for months. It's going to bring the economy to a dead halt. People in their, 
you know, otherwise healthy people in their 30s and 40s are going to just be gone. You'd think, well, that, no, what are you talking about? That's not, that's not, no, that's not the thing to worry about. The thing to yeah. worry about is why is Mulaney on that list and I'm not, you know? And, right, um, right, right. Let's just go after Mulaney now. Cause I don't, <laughs> I mean, I listen to it and I just don't get it. Um, no, he's uh, a brilliant no, and lovely fellow. Don't, don't even clarify because it's the highest compliment yeah. that we could be like, what the fuck is everybody on about Mulaney? I, I can't think of another comedian that we could say that and not be like, oh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, exactly. We don't even have to clarify. There's no one out so- there is thinking Mulaney's, He's one of the few comedians who's so good. No one thinks he's getting away with murder. <laughs> yeah, well, that's exactly right. <laughs> the rest of yeah. us to be like, yeah, that guy is getting away with murder. <laughs> I don't get it. So he's got a funny name, Conan. What's that? Um, oh, yeah. my God. You, uh, we're, we're wrapping up here. I, 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 Sona told me you only had an hour, but. Um, yeah, she and- says stuff. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad that we're getting the full episode. I was going to ask you, I remember you used to wear a Lance Armstrong uh, style bracelet that had, uh, do you remember this? Oh, uh, Death Pen. Low bass hum. What's oh, low ba- oh, it's two. Yeah, one is low bass hum. I'll talk about low bass hum. Um, uh, Death Bed was, I was at a sort of an avant-garde party once and there was this guy walking around making bracelets for people and he could make them on the spot, like press them out of tin and then you'd wear the bracelet and he was walking around and he was, it was kind of pretentious and he was just like, you know, Conan, he had gone through and I saw people wearing these bracelets cause he could make them in a second. And so people were wearing them that said, you know, breathe and, you know, <laughs> tomorrow is now and whatever, you know, <laughs> and, um, being clever is yeah, worthless. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are no comedians. Eckhart Tolle. <laughs> but then, uh, he just said to me, what, what can I put on your bracelet? And I said, put deathbed on it. And he was like, he thought he was, he was like, what? And I said, deathbed. And he said, why would you want deathbed? And I went, cause you know, like in life, you want to think, is this what I'm going to be worried about when I'm on my deathbed? You know, like when I'm leaving this earth and I'm in that bed, am I really going to be worried about this stupid thing? So that was one of them. But the thing that... Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's that's memento moria. That's yeah. remember that you'll die, which is not to be sad. I, I, I said this a million, I'll say it a million more. I hate brushing my teeth. I'm, I'm 41. I, I just don't want to do it. And every time I do, I go, Pete, this might be the last time you brush your teeth. Like really own that. And then I don't mind doing it. Right. I'm, I'm feeling it. I'm tasting all that stuff comes to life because I go, I know you, it's not exactly the same thing. You're saying, don't worry about it. Cause you're just going to, who cares when right. you're on your deathbed. Right. But it's similar. It, it, it brings the moment to life. But the other one was um, when I first met my wife and I met Liza, we were talking and I said, I think our society is too obsessed with the high highs of like sublime happiness. Do you know what I mean? Like um, that's what our culture is. Wow. I, you you see it in commercials all the time. People come outside there. There'll be like a Land Rover commercial. I, I always love this on Christmas morning. The husband, yeah. the husband and the wife come out and there's two Land Rovers there with yeah. bows on them. And you're like, what? What? Rea- I mean, that's when you want a plane engine to just. 
yeah. fall and hit the hit the yeah. cars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think I, I've done well in life. I can't imagine ever, ever, ever like who are they making this commercial for? Yeah, and also who he bought her one and she bought him one and. There's, they each have a bow on them, and yeah. what? Did, and they're matching bows. They went to the same bow company. They yeah, are meant for each other. But I, but I mean, like people were obsessed with that kind of delight. And I said, uh, I said, well, I'm, I'm sort of more interested in the low bass hum of happiness, just this low bass sound of gratification running through my life. And there's higher notes on top of it and lower notes, but it's just this low bass hum. So then my mm-hmm. wife had that made into a bracelet. But she gave it to him, and the person, the person who made it, shoved all the letters really close together. And it just, so she gave me this thing, and she went, "Look, like it has real meaning. Look, look what it says." And I looked at it, and I went, "Lobasum." <laughs> and I honestly, I'm not kidding. I was like, "What's lobasum?" And she's like, "No, read it carefully." And I went, "Lobasum." I don't know what lobasum is, and I started to get irritated. And she was like, "Low bass hum." And I went, "Why didn't they put spaces?" Between low and pain. And so worked up about it, completely undid the, what the message of the bracelet was. And to this day, I still have it. It's like leather with a little bit of metal on it. I'll still look at it sometimes and go, those letters, those letters need to be separated. <laughs> what, what the fuck is low bassum? <laughs> it sounds like the pharmaceutical drug in the movie The Fugitive. I know, I know. He goes, so they could give you Lobasum. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually Provasic. Uh, I've seen that movie too many times. I love that. I'm going to send you some CBD for your back. That is the, the gift for the guest. Have you ever tried CBD? You know what? I never have. You're going to try it. All I'm right. going to send you some Charlotte's Web. Uh, com slash weird. If other people want to try it, keep it crispy. 19 is the promo code. I have it right here. It's called, look, it says recovery on there. This is some good sh- shit for your body. That'd be good. Go. Yeah, to me, I mean, it's not I'll even the back so much as the legs get, I, I, you know what I do? I don't stretch enough. So I'll crank really hard on my bike or I'll run really hard. And then I'm, you know, like, all right, time to go talk to Pete. And I don't do the necessary. I know. Tour I have no interest. I have no interest in stretching. I, no, we're I, not I, meant to be limber people. I took a tiger bomb off my wrist so you wouldn't tease me. Um, we're almost out of time. Uh, I wanted to, I know, you know, this, we always talk about God. We've talked about it indirectly this whole time, which is one of my favorite ways to talk about it. So we don't have to spend a lot of time here. Um, I'm interested in what you think, uh, what you were taught that God is, what you think God is now. Uh, if you've ever taken psychedelics, that's a good one. I love how you, you, this is your wrap up question. Uh, ridiculous. What do you think is at the end of the universe? But then what's it? <laughs> uh, obviously, what I was taught was very specific as a kid. Jesus did this, and then he did that, and this is where God is, and this is what his chair looks like. And, and, yeah. um, and then Zeus. Yeah, and, and, and the more specific it was, the more uncomfortable I got. And I uh, had religious instruction. You know the comedian Brian Kiley. He and I actually went to the same uh, um, we, we went to the same place called the Cenacle, which I think was in Brighton, Mass. And we both went there and you'd go there after school and there were nuns in the whole nun outfit. And they would teach us on this high hill in this like stone building. We would learn. And I remember once um, as a kid raising my hand and asking the nun, what's heaven like? And the nun said, 
what's your favorite thing to do? And I said, color in my coloring book. Uh, sadly, at the time, I was 35. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, I was, you know, I was probably 10. I was like 10 or nine or something. And I said, oh, I like coloring in my coloring book or eight. I keep making it lower to be less embarrassing. <laughs> I think I was, I think I was two. I was two. I was, I was, I was in the womb. But anyway, she said to me, uh, what's your favorite uh, thing to do? And I said, color my coloring book. And she said, well, heaven is you do that all the time forever. And I couldn't sleep for days afterwards. Cause that's wow. horrifying. Yeah. Horrifying. Like that actually sounds like hell. Like, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, more coloring book. Well, okay, I'm done. That was kind of fun. And I did it for an hour. You'll do it for every hour until. Yeah. So. Um, it's all the donuts in the world. Yes. It's Homer's hell. Yeah. And so I, uh, I, you know, as I've gotten along in years, I like losing the specificity. I like losing. So I, Oh, Conan, I have to stop you. That is so good. That is what Richard Rohr and others that I know you would love say that spirituality is so much about unlearning than it's about learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To me, it's about, you know, when you have that feeling, you know, when you have that feeling that you've been good or you've made someone happy or you've connected or they've made you happy. And I think that's, that's all there is to me, the essence of it. I think the key word there is connection too. That that one of I'm reading a book called The Divine Dance by Richard Rohr, which is about the Trinity. And his whole point is that the, the reason there's a triune God is that God is relationship, and God is revealed in relationship. Right. So when you're making somebody happy, it's not just the Boy Scout badge; it's that you created the energy and the flow of God in that exchange. That is God. Well, that's it's, the other thing that uh, obviously. Uh, one of the huge revelations, one of the best things I learned in college, you know, mostly colleges, forgetting what you learned. But when, when I was taught the concept that there is no such thing as an altruistic act, that mm-hmm. there is no altruism, because if I do something for somebody else, uh, I'm getting, I'm doing it because I want to re it's you're, you're never completely clear. Like yeah. uh, of you want to be well thought of, so you're fed and sexed. Yes, basically. and so yeah, and you want to be uh, also you want to not only be well thought of, but even if you donate anonymously, you're adding to your own sense of your yeah, goodness, which yeah. is providing you nourishment. So that's I, right. Once you get to that idea, I think that's that's helped me a lot. Which is just you know get over yourself. Just um, you. You know it. You know it when you feel it. When you when you have that, a good moment with somebody, uh, when you have whether it's a good interview or a, or a, a great exchange or um, just something, you just have one of those nice magical moments. That's probably as good as it gets. You know. And I think magical means getting over yourself, forgetting yourself. Right. People have it skydiving. People have it performing. I think it's one of the reasons why you and I are drawn to performing. Is you have it's absurd for me to say it, but I mean it when you small Conan are playing the part of big Conan, both Conan sort of vanish. You're just in the moment. Right. What I'm saying is how absurd or paradoxical it is that you do a show called Conan to lose the sense of Conan and to become 
one thing with the audience. Yeah, you can be really, you can be really free. You can do things in that state that you can't do otherwise. I do have to, you know what I'm doing in five minutes? I have to get on a, this is not made up. This is real. I have to get on a Zoom Zoom conference that's actually going to be taped uh, for, uh, for the Turner Network. And, uh, with my boss. So I'm doing, wow. I'm doing that in uh, seven minutes. So is that the same guy that you and I pitched to in Atlanta? Um, I remember you gave me all this good advice when we did that. Yeah. On how to do that. It was really, really I don't nice. think it was. Well, no, I don't think so. It wasn't Atlanta. Let me end with this. Um, I, I always want to say when we talk on the record, I owe my career to you. I, I admire you. You're a hero of mine and you're my friend and you're my mentor. I got that right. Yeah, I'm your mentee. Um, and I really, really appreciate you. And you're very valuable. And oh, that's, well, uh, um, I would say right back at you, but no. <laughs> you, are not, you are not my mentor and you're not my hero. So I, I think very little of that applies. No, you're, Pete, you're the, gift, you're, you're the gift that keeps on giving. I really love, uh, you always make me laugh. I love uh, talking to you. And I love that, we can uh, go to these other places because you're one of the. Me too. I love that you talk about this stuff, and it it doesn't come across um, as highfalutin or uh, you know you don't feel like there should be incense burning in the background. <laughs> well, I'm going to put that on a on a bracelet with lots yeah. of spaces. Thank you, Conan, for yeah, no doing problem. it. I, I love and it. I love doing would, this. And well, I hope to see you in person soon. You'll never see me again. <laughs> way I like to talk to you. We have the guest say the catchphrase. It's how we end. We have uh, you say keep it crispy, and then we're out of here. This is Conan O'Brien saying keep it crispy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you, Pete.